Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 17th, 2018, and my guest is psychotherapist and author Gary Greenberg. He first appeared on Econ Talk way back in September 2010. We talked about his books, The Noble Lie and Manufacturing Depression. Gary, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks. Good to be back. Our topic for today comes from a recent article of yours uh, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine that we'll link to. The title is, What If the Placebo Effect Isn't a Trick? start by defining uh, what the placebo effect is. Well, you're going to start in, in a really hard spot because <laughs> nobody has a very good definition of the placebo effect. Let me give you two that will show you the extent of the problem. One version of the definition of a placebo effect is any effect of a medication that isn't due to the medication. Um, the other definition, which is simple and straightforward, But there are problems with that definition, and the other definition is anything that happens in a clinical trial that isn't related to the effect of the medicine. Or to put it another way, everything that happens in a clinical trial except for the medication effect. And why are those different? Well, the difference is that the placebo effect, as we think of it now, is almost entirely an artifact of the process of trying to experiment and find out which treatments, mostly medications, but to some extent other medical treatments work, and which don't. So to limit it, to define it by means of the clinical trial, which is the method by which uh, the Food and Drug Administration requires makers of drugs and devices to prove that they work, to define it in those terms is to give an idea of how um, the placebo effect really functions in medicine. It's, It's the stalking horse against which all of the other horses have to race in order to show that they deserve to uh, not be put out to pasture. Um, And so what that tells you is that the placebo effect is really just the sort of the flip side of medicine. They're like uh, evil – it's like the evil opposite twin from the medical point of view, the evil opposite twin of the medication because it also has a healing effect – that nobody very well understands or can control. And in those clinical trials, the way this manifests itself is that I, uh, a population will be split in half. One half will get the real medicine, so to speak, and the other will get typically what, a sugar pill? Yeah, some, some formulation that looks and tastes and in every other way, is exactly the same as the um, study drug. The only difference is that it is uh, inert. It would have be made of uh, of uh, dextrose or something like that. And I know this sounds like a stupid question, but after I read your article, I realized it's not really a stupid question at all. the um, The people who the, the participants in these clinical trials have no idea which they which they're getting. They just get a pill. Generally, that's the case. Uh, it, it's called uh, the, the double-blind, placebo-controlled method. So what that means is that neither the experimenter nor the subject knows whether they're getting drug or placebo. And that, in turn, reflects the hope that um, they've managed to make the two treatments exactly equivalent with the exception of the molecule that's in the active drug. Yeah, I, it's a strange test when you think about it, because if it weren't for the so-called placebo effect, you wouldn't have to give anybody the the, the sugar pill, well, right? You just say, you're not on the trial. We're going to see how your health goes over. You're not getting the medicine uh, or you're getting a sugar pill. And we're just doing that just to kind of have you come in and go through the same kind of stuff that the other people are going through. But by the way, you've got a sugar pill. Um that's not what they do typically. No, and the reason is that there's – well, there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that the idea 
the, the general, I guess, received wisdom about placebo is that it works somehow or other by deception. That is to say, if you know that you're getting a placebo, somehow that's going to diminish its effect or, or change its effect. And so telling people that they're getting a placebo, theoretically, would reduce the placebo effect. Now, interestingly, to the extent that that question has been um, researched, it, it doesn't necessarily prove out. Um, so the, the, uh, the ongoing use of the placebo in the clinical trial is really just there to reassure everybody that they are actually seeing the work of the drug and not the work of treatment in general, not simply the work of being exposed to a healer or to the medical, uh, to the medical industry in any way. One of the things I took away from your article is that that's something of a, an illusion, that they're only getting the medicine. And of course, the part that I don't think you wrote about this, but it's got to be an issue. It also means the way we conduct clinical trials, that the people get the, quote, real medicine, people are getting the molecule that purports or we're trying to figure out whether it helps or not. Those people have some awareness they might have a placebo. Well, part of the process of being in a clinical trial is being informed that you have a 50% chance of getting the, uh, getting a placebo. So presumably everybody in a clinical trial that's placebo controlled knows that that's a possibility. They just don't know whether or not they've got the drug. So if, if I told half the group, oh, you've got the placebo, and I told the other half, you've got the real drug, uh, you'd think you'd get, from what I've learned, you'd get a different result than if everybody thought it was a 50-50, because some of the people getting the real drug are thinking, eh, this might not be the real drug. And that psychological awareness perhaps has a negative impact, just like the people who get the placebo uh, or, or sometimes getting having a, an improvement over not being in the trial at all just from the possibility that they might have the real drug. That's right. Um, and, and so what, what you're really getting at there is the fact that even though every clinical trial has a placebo group, virtually everyone, um, the place- and, and therefore is a study of the placebo effect as well as of the drug, there hasn't been a whole lot of inquiry into the placebo effect itself. So the scenario that you just described, you could actually find that out fairly easily. You would have to have a group that you tell you're giving a placebo, but give them the real drug, and another group that you tell that to, but you're honest, and then the same with the drug, a group that gets it thinking they're getting it and a group that gets it thinking they're not getting it. And that would... um, really answer a lot of questions uh, once you crunch the numbers. The problem with that is, A, who you're going to get to pay for that, and B, even if you get somebody to pay for it, you have to deceive your subjects. And while that's not impossible, that's a, a higher bar to cross than most researchers are willing to go uh, in order to get the research approved by uh the government funders or the university or whoever is providing the uh, funding for the study. It's a serious ethical question, obviously, and we're going to come back to it, I think, more than once, um, especially when I'm talking to the author of a book called The Noble Lie, um, <laughs> in which your these issues that are raised by the placebo effect reminded me of your book. We, we're all, we all, most of us would say, well, deception's wrong. But if I deceive you and improve your health, it's a strange moral conundrum. And, and the point I want to make – actually, I'll read a quote from the, from the article. Uh, you say the following. Give people a sugar pill, they have shown, in those patients, especially if they have one of the chronic stress-related conditions that register the strongest placebo effects. And if the treatment is delivered by someone in whom they have confidence, will improve. Tell someone a normal milkshake is a diet beverage, and his gut will respond as if the drink were low-fat. Take athletes to the top of the Alps, put them on exercise machines, and hook them to an oxygen tank, and they will perform better than when they are breathing room air, even if room air is all that's in the tank. Wake a patient from surgery and tell him you've done an arthroscopic repair, and his knee gets better even if all you did was knock him out and put a couple of incisions in his skin. Give a drug a fancy name, and it works better than if you don't. Now, these are the just various examples of the placebo effect in action. The willingness of our of something to happen uh, that is not related to what we think is the therapeutic treatment. So, tell us what we know about how the heck that's possible. 
very little. <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 widely observed. It's been widely observed for many years. And let's remember that prior to say 1860, at the earliest, uh, almost all medical treatment was worked by uh, well relied on the placebo effect. Or another way of saying that is most of it didn't work by the mechanism that it was thought to work. And in general, there was no reason for it to work at all. There are a few exceptions. Aspirin is an ancient remedy. Um, uh, some of the, you know, uh, Pepto-Bismol has an ingredient in it that has been around for a long time. But for the most part, um, we're, we're, if you go back in, in history, all the treatments were placebo treatments. So uh, the fact is that it defies in so many ways the standard model of understanding about healing, about illness, about how to study these things, that it's been very difficult to pin it down. But let me, let me say one thing about that list, which you prefaced by talking essentially about deception. There are some pretty strong studies that show that if you just tell people that they're getting a placebo, they get better. That has to be in certain conditions and the, the, with certain medical conditions and under certain treatment conditions. But deception may not be as central to it as we think. So there are two pieces to the your article that I was fascinated by. One is the possibility that the placebo effect is related to the level of empathy or the style in which the placebo is delivered. And the second is a possible genetic difference among people in uh, having a stronger versus a weaker placebo effect. And that genetic difference is not stupidity. It's not somebody saying, oh, I'm going to say a magic word here and you're going to – your uh, cancer is going to be cured. It's rather that literally some of the uh, placebo effects observed – in uh, these clinical trials vary by genetic uh, markers. So let's start with the, um, the empathy question. So there's a, a, a theory out there that what's happening in the healing encounter is that the healer, the, the, the physician, the, is um, in order to do his or her work, has to try to understand the patient's situation from the inside. Now, we know that there are many, especially as you get into rarefied specialties, uh, the, the stereotype is exactly the opposite, um, that the subspecialist is more interested in the particular disease or the symptom or the surgery or whatever it is that the person needs than he or she is in the whole person. But at the level of primary care, for sure, medical care involves being empathic with somebody who's suffering. And the idea there is that um, when you do that, you set off a series of events that, and this is real preliminary, but that may modulate the body's own healing abilities. So, for instance, there's research we know from other uh, areas in which we know there's something called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are networks of brain cells that respond to uh, watching somebody do something that you're familiar with as if you yourself were doing it. So, um, or somebody having an experience like sadness that you yourself are familiar with, your brain actually looks like the brain of the person who's sad. And that's thought to be related to empathy. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's the cause of it, but it may be the, the signature of it in, in the brain, loosely speaking. Um, and so there's research that's emerging. It's in the very early stages, which shows that when there's a successful therapeutic alliance between a healer and a patient, that one of the things that's going on is that the mirror neuron networks are being activated. And so that's very suggestive that if there is what they call brain concordance, between a healer and a patient, that that may help uh, the healing process, which isn't to say that whatever the treatment is, isn't also a part of it, but that in a way, the treatment is the occasion for this expression of empathy or care or concern or whatever you want to call it, and that that isn't just window dressing, and that isn't just there making you feel good, 
uh, for a moment, it's somehow related to the fact of healing. You know, we can, we can look at, I don't know, an antibiotic, eat a bacteria in a test tube, and that will tell us that antibiotics, you know, eat bacteria. But nobody, even with infectious disease, can say exactly why that treatment is what makes you feel better or get better. I mean, we, you know, we're pretty close to being able to state it as a fact, but if you think about it, there's still a little bit of a gap, even in that most, uh, most uh, objective kind of medicine of, say, giving somebody penicillin for an infection. Um, there's still a little bit of a gap there that we just don't fully understand, and it's possible that that placebo effect is part of what's in that gap. We had David Meltzer on here uh, a few months back, and He's looking at, in a way, he's looking at a few things. But one thing he's looking, at, I would, I would think of as, as empathy or whole, more holistic approach. This is my memory of the moment that you're reminding me of, where doctors interact more conversationally with patients rather than making sure they fill out all the right check boxes and medical record data. And instead, they they chat with the patients. They give them a lot more one-on-one time. And the way that's that also was just originated by understanding a story in the. New York Times Sunday Magazine, and in that article, the author talked about how Meltzer's uh, physicians in these trials that he's doing learn things about the patient that they might not otherwise have known. They find out they were playing poker last night, ate a lot of French fries, and therefore maybe that's why their cholesterol spiked. That kind of fuller picture or anxieties from their daily life they would you wouldn't otherwise know about that might explain some of their conditions. But Hearing you talk, it makes me think, actually, a lot of maybe what they're doing is just a placebo effect. It's the emotional – and Meltzer may have talked about this, so I will have to go back to the episode. But a lot of it may just be the emotional comfort, the uh, body being in a healthier situation that, that someone's listening to them and, and seems to care at least and maybe actually does care even better. So that's the first thing I want to mention. The second thing I want to mention is uh, – Lynn Kiesling, uh, economist, has looked at uh, mirror neurons and, and the correspondence to Adam Smith's work in the theory of moral sentiments. And as listeners know, I'm a big fan of that book, so uh, we'll link to that article as well. Uh, this question of how what's exactly going on. And the fact that you raise this issue of, of when people perhaps are responding to doctors' care. But this idea that 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 we don't even understand fully – you say we're close. I wonder how close we really are in understanding the power of antibiotics or chemotherapy. Uh, it would seem we, I mean, as an amateur nov- novice uh, layperson with no real knowledge of this, I always thought, oh, yeah, we, we know how these pathways work. So if we don't, if some of it is the unleashing of the body's own uh, anti-immune system, I mean, immune system, and also the body's uh, ability to to fight various infections automatically, which probably just what is the English phrase for immune system? Uh, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to think that through emotion and the feeling that you're being taken care of, or the idea that something you're putting in your body is going to help you, just that idea of it could focus those inner strengths and stratagems that your body already has. Yeah, I, I would say that um, what's crazy is an interesting word. It, it, um, it, to me, it's – Wrong word it's, for us. Talk, well, no, say to a psychotherapist maybe. Yeah, maybe so, <laughs> unless you want a diagnosis. Um, it's, it's, it's not – it is a little crazy making though. If you if – you, if the definition of illness and, and healing is limited to – the actions of molecules upon molecules, you know, an antibiotic on a bacterium, then it is a little crazy making because it makes it really hard to talk about all this other stuff. So even the little, um, even the things that you were saying just a minute ago, um, a, a doctor would hear that, could hear that and begin to really worry that you're about to tell people that, you know, vaccines don't really work. I know you're not, but you know, that there's such a, there's such a strong uh, uh, set of beliefs that the way medicine works is objective. It works despite who you are. Science. It, it's science, yeah. And science, uh, 
you know, has been construed as this um, way of knowing that provides certainty um, and and doesn't uh, doesn't um, you know sort of rules out the random and rules out the subjective. And uh, I'm not. I think that there's some truth to that, but I also think that when it comes to medical treatment, we underestimate the extent to which our, our experience, our expectations, our understandings about healing and illness are indebted to historical accidents. For instance, the first advances that really start modern medicine were advances that recognize germs as the causes of disease, uh, the discovery of anthrax, of smallpox, of cholera, um, all of those, you know, 19th century to syphilis, 19th century discoveries of these bugs that were creating illness. They're real bugs. And they are real bugs. They really exist. And they, and really, when you do something to make them not exist or not so much, you end up feeling better or being better or surviving, you know? And this is, this is, you know, I don't want to underestimate this at all. This is revolutionary. The, the fact that it changed everything. I mean, look at the fact what it means to know as a parent today that if your kid gets strep throat, 99.9% of the time, you give him some drugs and he's going to be just fine. 150 years ago, that kid probably could have died. And that would be a real possibility or get scarlet fever and end up maimed for life. That was a real possibility. So I don't want to underestimate this, but because those were the early discoveries, this is our idea of medicine. It's a magic bullet model. You find the cause in the body and you aim your bullets at it and you kill it. And while that works for some things, it doesn't work for others. And more to the point, we may be, uh, I don't know, mistaking the basic mechanism. Um, we may not really understand the basic mechanism. You don't really have to. You know, if it works, it works. But when you then go to branch out to other more mysterious, more complicated illnesses, uh, you find that it, it doesn't work quite so well. And in fact, it's possible that the low-hanging fruit has been picked. And that with the proliferation of uh, immunological diseases, uh, autoimmune diseases, or uh, complex cancers, and so on, we may be looking at the kinds of illnesses that simply aren't going to respond to that model. And among those conditions, I think, are some conditions that do respond strongly to placebo treatments. Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic pain, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, all uh, are, and there's others, all are illnesses that modern medicine does a relatively poor job with, and that placebo seems to be very, well, more effective than you would expect it to be. So, I mean, pain we know is a peculiar thing because we know people can have pain from phantom limbs. So obviously pain's weird. Uh, pain's somewhat in your head. Of course, somewhat everything's in your head. So it's a little bit tricky, but, uh, you know, somebody who has chronic pain, you know, you'd like to say, well, okay, so here's a painkiller, but actually don't take that because actually they they may be addictive. So instead, I'm going to give you a sugar pill. Just think of it as a painkiller. <laughs> and that is not good medical practice in general uh, or to tell people to, quote, think positively or whatever else. But that's that's a sense in which that this research is heading in that direction in some degree, right? Yes, and what, what you just got at uh, is – the, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there's great evidence that techniques related to mindfulness can be very helpful with chronic illness, particularly with the pain component of it. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you can end up with uh, in, in a, you can end up blaming the victim, where the patient feels pain, and because he or she's been told that that's his mindfulness could control it, and then it doesn't. Like he's failed, um, and that you know is a that's also a function of what we expect medicine to do in the first place. It's all supposed to happen without us. You know, you could be, you know, right. you could you could be asleep and we give you the drugs, and you wake up and you're better. So to introduce ag human agency into the equation, we don't really know how to do that yet. 
And we certainly have to be aware of the fact that in doing it, you could introduce uh, things like victim blaming and in a, in unnecessary guilt and all sorts of things that um, could go wrong, go wrong with and, that formulation. And unnecessary deaths for people who think they can avoid oh, yeah, some uh, challenge, health challenge, by just thinking their way through it or meditating over it. Or, I mean, if you read the Walter Isaacson uh, biography of, of Steve Jobs, there, there's some strange things he did to himself uh, when he was suffering from cancer that I, I feel I worry. I feel sadly that you know that's he was rejecting some alter he was accepting some alternative medical treatments that probably didn't help him so as as you said earlier i want to make it clear nothing we're saying here is anti-science or uh anti the it appears to be the many wonderful successes of what we might call western medicine the purely objective scientific method for intervening in the body but there are just some mysteries here that we don't fully understand and I have to tell a story I've told before, but it's so appropriate. I heard it told about Niels Bohr, I think. It's not really I think about Niels Bohr. I think it's been told about many people, Einstein and others. The student goes into Bohr's office, and as he's leaving after chatting about some homework problem, uh, notices a horseshoe over the, the door, and the student says, oh, well, Professor Bohr, you don't believe in that, do you? And Niels Bohr answers, well, of course not, but they say it works even if you don't believe in it. Right. It's the same kind of crazy, unscientific, unobjective, impossible result that something magical is happening. Yeah, and and actually that's if that that happens in real medicine too, right? Uh, because why you know this is you look at a pill. A pill is tiny, <laughs> right? It's just this little thing, and yeah. it it has no taste, or you can and you swallow it, and all of a sudden. Something, or maybe not so suddenly, but eventually, something really quasi miraculous happens. I mean, where's the, there's magic in that too. That's true. So I'm gonna tell a story. I, I don't think I've told this before, but um, I'll let you react to it because it's perfect for your your article in this conversation. I had some uh, shoulder pain, so I went in to get a uh, a steroid shot, and one of the things that uh, I had a tear in my in my rotator cuff, despite my lack of baseball experience. <laughs> and I, this happened a few five, four, four years ago. Maybe I'm 60 years old. I'm laying on the table, and it's a really cool thing. They've got a. Of course, I'm not paying for it, so it's not perhaps as cool as it should. I should probably feel some pain about this, but I don't. I'm enjoying watching the fact that the doctor gets to put the needle exactly where she wants to put it. Because she's watching my shoulder on a uh, some kind of scanner, and I can see it too, which of course is a perfect placebo effect. If I can mm -hmm. actually see, oh, the needle's going right where it's supposed to go, and and of course my shoulder got better, either because the steroids or the placebo effect. But while I was waiting for the doctor, I was chatting with the nurse, and I said, "What's the coolest thing you've seen in this office?" And she said, "Oh, it's this amazing thing." These people come in with back pain, and we put this cement in their joints, and it it's it's magical. They their pain just totally disappears. And what she and I said, "Wow, that's very cool," which was a restraint on my part because a week or few, maybe a month before, uh, I had at some point recently had interviewed Adam Sifu, CIFU, Econ Talk guest, uh, about his book. Um, reversing, I can, I'm going to get the title wrong, but I'll put a link to it. And basically what, what they find when they actually do clinical trials of this technique, which is called vertebroblasty, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, but where they put cement into your vertebrae to get rid of back pain from osteoporosis, um, there's no difference between doing the treatment where you actually go into this person's back and inject cement versus laying them down opening the cement so they can smell it, and then injecting saline into their uh, vertebrae. And, of course, in a certain dimension. So what's, what do we learn from that? So I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say, did you know that doesn't work? Yeah. And now that I've read your, um, your article, I, I have, the doctors in that office are particularly empathetic. They're wonderful people. They're great listeners. Um, maybe that's why their vertebroblasty actually does have a 
a big placebo effect. But um, what do you learn from that? You can't say to people, well, you've got back pain, so what we're going to do, we really don't want to inject the cement. We're just going to let you sniff this glue, and uh, we'll inject some saline. That's not a viable alternative. So in what dimension is this placebo effect horse that has to be beaten a real horse? It's not even a real horse. Strange. Well, yeah, it's because, you know, you say with some certainty, and I'm not disagreeing with you, that you can't just tell people this is what we're going to do. But in part, that's because we're pretty well socialized to expect a certain kind of treatment. Um, And the kind of treatment we're led to expect is not, uh, uh, you know, a a saline uh, injection uh, accompanied by a lot of really nice people. However, uh, medical treatment, no matter what it is, is a ritual. And so what we could learn from that is what we learned from all of these studies. And by the way, that lower back study that you mentioned is one of a number of studies that show that lower back uh, pain in general is one of the most responsive uh, uh, troubles to the placebo effect, uh, to placebo treatments. Um, so what we learn is that uh, in addition to that, you know, there's more things under heaven and earth than you've dreamt of, um, is that the ritual is very, very important to the outcome. That especially in a certain group of people, and this gets back to your second point about genetics, especially in a certain group of people with a certain, with a certain group of illnesses, um, the ritual part of the treatment becomes very important. And that book is called um, Ending Medical Reversal by Adam Sifu, and it's co-authored with uh, Vinayak Prasad. Uh, so the ritual is important, and that's challenging to our um, our view of that science. Well, you know, the, the very word ritual, it's like myth. It's like it's all – it gets – People's, uh, if if you're a if you're a scientist or a, a physician um, married to the scientific method, you start to feel like somebody's trying to uh, say something bad about you if they say it's a ritual. I actually don't think so. I mean, I'm a psychotherapist. I believe what I do is I practice a lot of ritual. I pra- <laughs> I, well, I, yeah, I, I believe I deliver a placebo treatment. I, I think I do a really good job of it, um, but I, for the most part, but I. I couldn't tell you what the active ingredient is in psychotherapy, uh, and I think that to some extent that goes on in all medical treatment. And so we have our rituals. And and by the way, one of the interesting uh, things that's happening in placebo research is that there is a mystery as to why the placebo effect is getting stronger as time goes on, at least with respect to clinical trials. In other words, as um, as as time goes on. Each cl- clinical trial seems uh, is is more likely to show a stronger placebo effect than they used to, and this has become a problem because if the drug can't beat the placebo, the drug can't get approved, and so many companies get their drugs as far as the phase three clinical trials, which is where the rubber me- meets the road, and they find out that uh, it doesn't really beat the placebo, and it's withdrawn from the market as if that means it doesn't work. But what it may also mean is that people um, have come to uh, – the, the, the placebo effect has been augmented maybe by advertising, maybe by expectation. Um, yeah, all, and it may be that the clinical trial setting is – if you've ever been in a clinical trial, which I have, you get treated like royalty. You're, they're never late, and if they are you know, five minutes late, they apologize. They, they love you. They, you're worth money to them. Um, and they treat you really, really well. You get the undivided attention of many physicians and nurses um, for many weeks. And it could be that that is one of the reasons it's increasing, not, not because the treatment itself has increased, but because while that's been going on, the rest of our lives in the medical uh, industry have been getting worse. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the doctors are more harried, the treatment is more fragmented, etc., it's also, I think, people increasingly, whether it's legitimate or not, think that doctors are saving the world and that everything works. And you know, we've we've had a guest on here, and I've talked to my own 
friends who are doctors, every patient assumes and every family member assumes there's a cure for everything. Yeah. You know, you go in and the doctor says, you know, starts describing why, you know, the patient is in very bad shape and needs to, people need to start getting their relationships in order and their affairs in order. And, and the family member says, so, so what do we do next? And the answer is, you know, there's nothing to do. It's, it's time to say goodbye, which we as human beings find, you know, infinitely painful, but we find it now intellectually perplexing because of course we've figured out, quote, everything, almost everything. Surely there's another treatment to try another drug to, to, to take in. And I think that if what you're saying is that that's, I think that's would enhance the placebo effect, which is yes, bizarre. That, that <laughs> level, that that set of expectations, I'm sure, is related. And you know, the rituals there are um, are immensely important. I mean, think about the patients that spend their last two weeks in the intensive care unit. Now, you know, a lot of times that is primarily uh, treating. I mean, obviously they're doing things, but who are they really treating? Are they treating the patient or are they treating, are they treating the family when, it's a, when nobody will say that it's a lost cause? So it's only tangentially related to the placebo effect, but it shows you the extent to which we grant authority to these rituals. Yeah, I'm thinking about pediatrics for a minute. Uh, I'll tell you why. I remember when we had our, our first kids, we're getting advice on doctors and, and people – recommended a particular doctor and they'd say, well, he's not very warm and he doesn't really, he's not good socially, but he really knows his stuff. And in my mind, that's the kind of doctor I want. I want the doctor who knows his stuff, right? I want the doctor who's got the best training, seen the most cases, knows that has the best hard drive, mental hard drive. This is uh, slightly pre-internet, right? I want them to be able to pull on all that knowledge, that empathy thing, oh, that's just, that's gravy. And it's just, I don't need that. I'm not, I'm not willing to pay for that. And I, I suspect, I suspect that, you know, we've been talking a little bit about how doctors find this alarming or puzzling or troubling. I suspect there are a lot of doctors out there and maybe some of them are listening and can we, I'd like to hear from them who believe in this overwhelmingly, who very much believe that their bedside manner and their level of empathy makes a difference. And yeah, I, some of that self-deception, of course, and confirmation bias, but I think a lot of doctors believe that. And, of course, they're the ones who have the best bedside manner, the ones who don't probably think it doesn't matter much at all. But I'm thinking then about pediatrics where I wonder – that would be an interesting place to look, right, for this effect because kids are going to – infants are going to respond at an incredibly visceral level. I'm sure what the word visceral means in that sentence, but at a primitive, non-rational level to emotional care. And we know infants respond to that. So it'd be interesting to see if free of all the baggage of our knowledge, we would still respond to some kind of placebo. Yeah, that's right. And these are all interesting ideas about how to study it. Of course, that's not getting done because there's no money in it. I think there might be. I mean, let's yeah. Let's talk about let's talk about the genetic thing. We didn't get to that. Um, what's the genetic uh, recent findings that that suggest well, genetics the, have something to do with this? There are findings that show that in some. So there there are some studies that have, as I mentioned before, that have been done with open label placebo. In other words, you tell people they're getting a placebo, and you compare their response to people who for whom you literally do nothing, and um, you also compare their responses of people told they're given placebo to people who are told that in a great, with a great amount of detail and a lot of attention and warmth. And what you find is what you might expect. In no treatment, people do worse. The placebo receiving – people receiving placebo with some explanation do better. And the people that receive a lot of attention and care along with their placebo uh, and explanation do the best. Um, it's small studies there with the irritable bowel syndrome. But it, if you then take the people who do the best on the placebo and you look at their uh, DNA, what you find is that they, they vary uh, in a predictable way. People who, are, um, who have one particular variant of a snippet of the genome 
um, are more likely to have a strong placebo effect than people who uh, have the different variant of that same snippet of the genome. And so what you find, and, and this, this finding has been not exactly replicated, but at least uh, supported by large-scale studies that show you know, one study that has 40,000 participants followed for 10 years showing that the same set, the same area of the genome, which produces a particular enzyme, um, is related to the um, response to placebo. And this isn't for irritable bowel syndrome. This is the response to placebo for the prevention of heart disease. And also, I think this study will be emerging soon uh, for the prevention of cancer, that there is a relationship between taking a placebo and avoiding those diseases. The placebo, people were taking placebo, vitamin E, or aspirin. Um, and there's a relationship between taking the placebo and um, not getting those or being, being prevent and having prevention from those diseases. And the indication is that um, when you have a certain kind of genetic makeup, you are more able to make use of the placebo effect. Um, or conversely, if you have a different genetic makeup, you not only can't use it, but in some ways it looks like it might affect you negatively to be taking a placebo, which is a very strange idea. Um, in the absence of side effects, you know, a placebo that somehow creates side effects, it's very odd to think that the placebo could actually make things worse. And the explanation for this is that all of these uh, effects are modulated by, on the same neural pathways, which is a neural pathway that has to do with dopamine. And that what the body, what, what we're really looking at is the body's ability to detect disruptions to homeostasis and then to restore homeostasis, not just in psychological dis disorder, but in physical disorder. So there's this long chain of reasoning that has a, is increasingly getting empirical support, indicating that the reason that there's a placebo effect is because we've been misunderstanding healing all along, that there is this, um, this neural aspect to healing, which is about more than just you know, uh, antibiotics eating bacteria or cancer chemotherapy agents eating uh, cancer cells, that it actually has to do with some healing process that is, uh, that is modulated by the central nervous system. And these findings are very suggestive. They're very early stages, but uh, it's not, you know, when you really look into it, it, it doesn't seem all that implausible. And one of the effects of this is that it indicates that the whole model of the clinical trial might be wrong because it assumes that the placebo effect is part of the drug effect or the sorry that the overall effect is a, the outcome of the placebo effect plus the drug effect it doesn't take into consideration the possibility that they might interfere with each other it doesn't take into the po account the possibility that the, a, a placebo might actually stop a drug from working or might make a person worse off to start with or vice versa. And this is a real challenge to the clinical trial model, but it's really basic. Nobody ever has stopped to ask, wait a minute, do they, are they really additive? Is the placebo effect plus the drug effect really the healing effect? Is that nobody ever proved that? They just assumed it. And I like to think of the body as a complex system. And so yeah, therefore, yeah, that's right? Understatement. Yeah, go, well, for me, it means a lot of, it brings a lot of baggage with it. It means I see it as an emergent system. It's something like the economy. It's prone to unintended consequences. The policy interventions are not always as straightforward as we think. We have to ask the question, and then what? And that's uh, really what you're saying in, 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 in so many words. You're saying that we don't fully understand the underlying complexity. If we don't, we don't understand then what we're actually doing when we intervene in these certain, in these particular ways. Uh, I want to take us down a, a path that you only allude to briefly in the article, which is weight loss. Uh, we had Gary Taubes on here a long time ago, a couple times, and many listeners have told me they, um, they've lost um, you know, tens of pounds, 30, 40 pounds, and changed their life. And I remember telling this to a friend of mine, uh, and he said, oh, no. 
that's all nonsense. The China study shows that what we really need to be doing is X, Y, Z. I've looked at the China study. It doesn't seem to be a very reliable study. But my friend lost an immense amount of weight following a very different um, uh, paradigm than um, than uh, the Taub's more um, paleo approach of of low carb and, and not worrying about fat. And and it, I've said this on the program and I've said it in humor, but it, it's always crossed my mind that if you believe in the diet, you're, you're going to lose weight even if there's no, quote, science behind it. And I've, that's a joke, I've always thought, but maybe it's not such a joke, in which case listeners who lost 30 and 40 pounds probably shouldn't be listening to this <laughs> next part because I don't want to spoil it. But, I mean, that's what's, where this starts to get, you know, kind of crazy. I'm going to say crazy again, weird um, – uh, Ouroborosy, um, I don't know, circular, uh, non-stable. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And, and the connection there is that, I mean, aside from the fact that maybe uh, the weight loss is not a simple matter of metabolism, right, right. Um, of what you eat and what you don't eat and so on um, and how much you exercise, but that it also has to do with um, how you are – what your mind is doing. Um, and there is, as you read that paragraph from the article, there's good research at Stanford that shows that um, the gut response, I mean, our gut is fully, uh, every, people are now talking about the gut brain, right? That there's so much, there's so much neural activity in, in the gut. So it's possible that the placebo effect could be related to um, weight loss. I just don't Aside from the studies showing the secretion of peptides is related to the uh, expectation of the person who's taking them, which is a pretty astounding finding, really. You take, you know, if you give somebody a milkshake and you tell them it's diet, then their gut behaves one way. And if you tell them it's just a regular old, you know, milkshake, their gut responds another way. That shouldn't happen, but it does. It also raises the question of how you clinically test dieting. Um, right, because it, it may matter a lot about what you tell people and what 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 you do to their expectations. I used to have this. I don't remember who first told me the joke, but you know, somebody offers me a brownie, and I say, "Well, I'm not." You know, I'm really trying to lose some weight, and they say, "Oh, don't worry, all the calories are in the last one." <laughs> and if I could just believe that, maybe it would be true. I mean, this is it's, it's a terrifying. I, I don't believe that, by the way. I, I don't think that that would work. But you're suggesting there's something to that. Well, there might be. Yeah, I mean, if if, if this research proves out, maybe mm. you just order yourself 16 brownies and only eat 15, and you'll be fine. I, I think to get serious again. Not that that's not oh, serious. There's some seriousness there about the psychological expectations part. But, you know, when you said there's no money in it, it would seem to be there's an immense amount of money in this in fully understanding. It's not money you might be able to capture, but you would think the foundations and possibly the uh, NIH would be deeply interested in getting a fuller understanding of the pathways of, of healing that we don't fully understand. Well, here's the sad part of that story. Um, everybody knows that well, first of all, the reason I said so glibly there's no money in it is because in the end, the money to bring something to market, whatever that might be, is generally provided by private industry. But as I'm sure you know, they are essentially helping themselves to taxpayer-funded uh, research all the time. Um, so what I really meant by there's no money in it is that the drug companies can't figure out how to make money off of it. But I agree with you. But the sad part of the story is that um, the NIH has had a uh, Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine for many years now, and it's run by good people. Um, the fellow who I think was its first director is no longer – he's retired. Um, but and, and some of the people I interviewed for the magazine article are very active and get a lot of their money from that center. But so far anyway, they have been a, unable – to come up with very strong results about anything, whether it's complementary medicine like homeopathy or chiropractic or studying the placebo effect. What happens is that the more you increase the population of your study, or let's say you do a lot of studies and then somebody does what's called a meta-analysis to do a, a study of studies, 
the placebo effect begins to recede because this contradicts everything we've been saying for the last 45 minutes or whatever uh, because it begins to look like, well, maybe the thing doesn't exist after all. But what has happened is that we have not been able to detect a strong enough signal in, to know in what direction to move in order to exploit the placebo effect in the standard way that we exploit other medical knowledge. I think, and this was part of what I was trying to write about in this article, that that may be because the placebo effect has never been something that we could study very well with the instruments of medical science, uh, bearing in mind that the placebo effect was really first identified in an attempt to discover whether or not the claims of a of a uh, of a, a guy named Mesmer, who's famous for being a mesmerist, uh, the, the whole hypnotic thing, was practicing. He was mesmerizing. He Literally, was that's where the word comes from, I assume. Yes, that's exactly right. And he's practicing this kind of weird seance-like treatment in Paris in the late 18th century, which was very effective. It was having very powerful effects on people with fatigue and malaise and uh, odd paralyses and stuff like this. But uh, uh, the king decided to investigate this uh, and appointed a panel of leading scientists, including Benjamin Franklin, and determined that – the placebo, that the I'm sorry that the mesmerism wasn't really doing anything that it was all in the imagination and that in fact the only thing worth looking at were the things that happened when the imagination wasn't engaged what they were calling imagination and that's actually the birth of the placebo effect that's when placebo was separated off from the rest of medicine and it was in the century later, subsequent, the 19th century and then the 20th century, that we became accustomed to looking in, at medicine the way we do and developing the instruments and the techniques and the methods for uh, ask, answering questions about health and illness. And so there's a mismatch that's built in from the beginning between how we investigate illness and healing on the one hand and placebo effects on the other. And it could be that what's going on is that looking for the placebo effect with those instruments is like looking for feathers with a magnet. It's like just because you don't – magnet doesn't find the feathers doesn't mean the feathers don't, aren't there. It just means that you haven't quite figured out how to find them yet. So uh, yes, there's probably money in it, but that money would have to be at least at first based on a new paradigm for even understanding healing in the first place. Well, since we have to think about it, I'm you know I'm not a doctor and I'm not a medical philosopher, but it it seems like there's something there. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are as a psychotherapist, and did this research and writing that article affect your practice in ways you're comfortable talking about? Well, it it didn't. I mean, I, I don't know if it affected it, except in so far as it strengthened my conviction that. So I'm I'm in my office uh, right now, as a matter of fact, and in about 20 minutes, I'll start my clinical day, and people will come in, and they'll tell me their troubles, and I'll talk to them, and I'll listen to them, and you know, I hope I can help them understand themselves a little bit better and whatever, have a better life. But I think that there's the, and that, so that's what's going on at the manifest level. But I think that underneath that. Um, there's something else going on that I really don't have a lot of control over. I don't have a lot of knowledge of, but is somehow transmitting care on a, a kind of a like a like a secret radio frequency, you know, that that is being transmitted to them and they're receiving it. And it's not that it's the words and and the thoughts are irrelevant. It's just that they are only part of what's going on. And I just think that. Maybe psychotherapy is the paradigm case of this. Now, could we find that that beam of uh, of whatever it is, you know, care, empathy, whatever you want to call it, and isolate it and figure out how it works and all this stuff? Maybe, but maybe not. I mean, maybe what we got is a situation where we have a way of knowing the world that doesn't allow us to uh, investigate. Um, certain things that and maybe certain things are literally beyond our ken uh, and maybe this is one of them i mean i know there's a lot of maybes but so it's changed it in the sense that um, i'm much more convinced that i am correct about that 
impression that I've had for many, many years that there's stuff going on here that I don't really fully understand um, and that dates back to the origins of therapy and the even the Freudian idea of the transference, the idea that there's the relationship is somehow uh, primary to the whatever the healing effect is. So it, it, it's kind of strengthened that conviction, but it hasn't given me a better sense of what exactly that is or how to find it or how to manipulate it. It's just there it is. Reminds me a little bit of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that you know, when you try to get too close, certain measurements are possible because the measurement itself affects the um, the outcome. I'm thinking about a maybe you'll know the source better than I do. The old uh, therapeutic phrase: "Every day and every way, I'm getting better and better," which I've I have to say I've thought of as a foolish thing, but maybe it's not so foolish. Maybe we can get the placebo effect to work on ourselves through our attitudes and through the through our brain. In fact, it makes me wonder whether confirmation bias and, and overconfidence is just a, a fancy way to maintain better brain health and overall health. Well, th- that could be. And, you know, then you start to talk about confidence and then you're really you're really wandering into the weeds because that <laughs> is, uh, you know, that's that confidence uh, is probably um, one of the most poorly understood and most important aspects of our daily lives. Um, and we see that confidence has very strange effects, uh, uh, especially, you know, we think about the confidence man um, and the idea that somehow confidence is related to fraud. And you think about some of the things that some people say about our current president as a confidence man. And, and you see that this uh, ability to believe um, is uh, crucial. Um, credulity is crucial, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's definitely a thing. Yeah, <laughs> that that's very well said. It's it it can be a bad thing. Uh, you could be credulous, I think, about avoiding certain medical treatments that you desperately need uh, and that are good for you. Again, to bring this back full circle. Uh, on the other hand, maybe it's good to be credulous about other things that aren't really scientifically known, but Maybe help you. I, my first thought, would you talk about getting rid of your practice? I, I think it would be a good idea to hack your uh, Yelp account and or wherever your ratings are, Dr. Greenberg, and get you a lot of five stars so that your patients, when they think, I wonder if this is going to work. Oh, well, look how successful everyone else is healed by this man. That's all you need. It's going to have a brilliant. That's a brilliant strategy. Yeah. I, if, if I have a Yelp thing, I don't know if I do. So I've actually never looked. Uh, but yeah, sure. That's uh, you know that's dishonesty in the service of uh, making people better, right? Yeah. You know, did you think about your book, uh, The Noble Lie? Because a lot of this has, and I recommend that book. That's a that book really um, had a powerful effect on me in thinking about a bunch of things in, in that fun, episode. It, but it. it, it Go ahead. In a funny way, all my books have been about the placebo effect, either directly, like my book about depression was one of the central parts of it is that, um, you know, that the placebo effect in antidepressants has largely been created by the advertising, uh, that placebo effects are about marketing, at least in that realm. Um, And in the earlier book, The Noble Lie, which I barely remember, but I do know that I, I wrote about I wrote about my experience in a clinical trial um, there, and I was a, a in it was a placebo controlled trial. And then a more recent book, uh, which was called The Book of Woe, is a book about the um, the making of the DSM, which is the Psychiatric Diagnostic Manual, which was a, a chaotic and vastly entertaining uh, mess. That uh, the American Psychiatric Association uh, <laughs> uh, went through back in the 2011, 2012, um, and uh, I, I just sort of embedded myself with them and watched it unfold. And you could see that so much of what they were doing with the DSM by creating this big book of of mental illnesses was creating confidence in themselves. Uh, you know, they had these labels and they could use them and they could identify people. And that's all about enhancing power. Uh, and I had many psychiatrists, well, I should say more than one psychiatrist say to me, yeah, well, don't 
you know, basically don't yank the curtain back too hard here because you'll undermine people's confidence and people's confidence is crucial to their getting better. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, that's a real tough one. I mean, a, a critique of the, you know, the modern psychological, psychiatric, psychotherapeutic movement is they've made many things that were just part of life, like being sad after someone passes away, a syndrome, right, to be avoided. Like, like disease should be avoided. So, you, if you get sick, you take medicine, get better. Whereas, right. I would argue that there are many things in life tragedy and, and mourning being one of them, where the experience should not be altered by uh, a medical intervention, except in a case where there's danger uh, to the person that part of life is, in, is experienced and enduring those challenges. And uh, that's we're right at that, talking about the DSM and your book, The Book of Woe, that's really where the, uh, how you draw that line is really important. Yeah, for sure. Of course, that's a discussion for another day. Well, I wish you well with your practice in the next Thank you. 10 minutes. I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time. My guest today has been Gary Greenberg. Uh, Gary, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. No problem, and uh, good luck with it, and I hope I'll talk to you again sometime. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.